Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me on episode 42 of the show about the show. Kind of a different episode today um, than we normally do. What we are going to do is we are going to be talking to a filmmaker and somebody who is really working on a, I guess you would say, a project of love. Um, I'm talking to Pete Gorton today. He's a Minnesota resident. Pete's a filmmaker, and he's making a film called 39 Seconds. It's the story of a black baseball player named John Donaldson. He stumbled across um, the life across Donaldson's life story, and since doing so, Pete has unearthed a lot of very, very, very cool information. And he's agreed to be here, and he's going, to, and we're going to spend the next hour or so together, kind of talking about. Um, we're going to talk about Pete's pro, Pete's project, Thirty Nine Seconds. We're going to talk about his love of baseball, his love of the Negro Leagues, all that, all that stuff, and so much more. I am pleased, happy, and honored, as always, to bring on my guest, and today it is Pete Gorton. How are we doing tonight, Pete? Oh, hello, I'm I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for being on the show. Well, thanks so for having uh, me. It's really important that we it's really important that we talk about John Donaldson and get his story out to as many people as can listen. And I appreciate you doing that. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Let's Before we get into all the John Donaldson stuff, let's talk about you a little bit. Um, obviously, you live in Minnesota. What, um, what kind of got you into baseball at an early age? Who was that first person that really, really uh, made you kind of fall in love with baseball? Well, I've been obviously, like, like many people, I mean, I was involved in baseball at a young age. Um, took some time off and was actually a golfer for a little while, but then came back to baseball in high school. And I grew up in central Minnesota, a town called Staples, um, uh, which is a railroad town um, in kind of central, in the central part of the state. Uh, Baseball has always been a huge part of my life. Uh, I love to watch the game. I love to know more about the game. Uh, When I came across John Donaldson in the early 2000s, I found an opportunity really to uh, restore a legacy of somebody that nobody knew anything about. Um, what I did was I started working on a book that was called Swinging for the Fences, Black Baseball in Minnesota. It was edited by a guy named Steve Hosbeck. And Steve Hosbeck was my high school social studies teacher in Staples. Um, he reconnected with me some 15, 20 years after I graduated and said he was putting this book together and he needed somebody to do some research on a guy named John Donaldson. So it was the first time I ever heard of him. Um, but my, my life in baseball was really, I continue to play today. I play about 40 games a year on a, a men's league team. I'm, I'm pushing the age of 50 now. I still play a lot. Um, I enjoy the game. I enjoy the camaraderie around um uh, being out on the field with other players. And then really, I really enjoy uh, educating people on something that they really don't know anything about. And people who are like-minded, who want to know more about uh, 
great Negro League baseball players. It's a great opportunity for me to use my skills uh, as a researcher to inform people of something that our country has really left behind and our sport has really left behind. Uh, and so the reemergence of Negro League study and Negro League baseball is something I'm very passionate about. Now, what what was it about Negro League baseball that really kind of was the drawing card and had the appeal for you when, you know, there's so many, there's so much minor league and major league stuff that you could have gone after. What was it about the, uh, what was it about the Negro Leagues that, that just kind of drew you in? I think generally the lack of knowledge about the subject uh, was an opportunity. Uh, you can go on, uh, as you know, on, on, on a web page and figure out what Lou Gehrig did on August 24th, um, 1928 and see that he was two for two or whatever he was. Um, and you could do that at your fingertips and within seconds what was really lacking with Negro leagues uh, study was the ability to do that with uh, black baseball players. And I always thought it was really important to be able to uh, do a Google search. I mean, that's our life today, right? I mean, in terms of, you need to be able to go online and be able to see um, and learn more about players. Um, and the, and the black players and Negro league players really didn't have that outlet. And so I, um, along with others have been working for years on trying to provide information about these people. John Donaldson was a great possibility for that because really nobody knew anything about him relatively there have been a couple of articles written about him in some books and different things but until swinging for the fences came along there had never been a chapter devoted to his life um and his time and so it was really i realized that it's really important that if you want to be able to get in-depth knowledge of not only baseball but particularly black baseball the opportunity was there that it just wasn't there for minor league and major leagues um if you want to be able to make comparisons, if you want to be able to uh, know the facts of a story, you need to be able to have uh, references and the ability to do so. And until we started working on the Dialson Network and we started working on filling in some of the Wikipedia pages, um, making Wikipedia pages for Negro League baseball players, that um, idea of being able to go and go online and actually find out about these people just was non-existent until um, we really were able to put a whole bunch of Wikipedia pages together for unknown black ball players, And so really the opportunity was there. Um, it was something that I was passionate about in terms of it touched my hometown. Um, black players came through my hometown and played a lot in the regions of Minnesota uh, during the time of segregation because this is a place where people could go make money. This is a place where people could go and play the game and, ex- uh, and exhibit their tremendous talent that was uh, tragically lost and, and pushed to these sort of um, extremes because of the color barrier. Absolutely, but that's that's not to take anything away from the career that he had both in the pre-Negro Leagues, the Negro Leagues, and traveling town ball in Minnesota. So we're going to get into that yeah. here. He had a uh, – that's, that's really the thing, and I really want to get definitions and stuff out of the way here so we can know what we're all talking about. Generally, Negro Leagues baseball as a um, topic um, is about – African-Americans playing baseball in the United States. 
the actual Negro League didn't start until uh, uh, 1920 with the first season of the Negro National League, which was an 18 league, uh, primarily in the Midwest, uh, which included the Kansas City Monarchs, Chicago American Giants, St. Louis Stars, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, they, but the study of Negro League baseball encompasses much more than that, much more than what would be uh, quote unquote organized league. Uh, Negro League baseball is talks about African Americans who were segregated. Uh, it into their own league. So it, it didn't necessarily mean that every single season there was a organized league that they played in. It's just kind of the moniker that's put there. So when, when I speak of Negro leagues, baseball, I'm not specifically talking about the Eastern colored league, which was in 1923 or the uh, Negro national league, which started in 1920. Um, I'm talking about Negro leagues, baseball in general uh, encompassed the entire period of the color barrier. And even before that started, but it, it is the study of black baseball players playing the game. And that's really important thing for people to understand that there wasn't always a Negro league. There was all black teams. There were uh, black players that played on all white teams. Uh, but these players are still considered Negro league baseball players because uh, of the segregation factor. So I, I always like to get that out of the way right away because sometimes I'll talk about Negro League and you'll say, but Pete, it doesn't, there wasn't a Negro League in 1915 and there definitely wasn't. Um, but these players were playing in uh, different types of organizations and were segregated from organized baseball. Absolutely. And, and that's a good, uh, that's a good, that's good clarity to have so that people understand what we're referring to. John Wesley Donaldson yeah. was born February 20th, 1891. He was an American uh, pitcher, obviously, in the, as you mentioned, at the Negro Baseball League. His career spanned over 30 years, but not necessarily all in the Negro Leagues. Um, he was his, he actually made his debut for the, for the Missouri Hanukkah Blues at Glasgow, and he played for them from 1908 to 1910. What do you? What can you tell me about his pre-Negro Leagues days years? Well, the Hanukkah Blues were uh, a, a town team baseball, a, a black baseball team that was located in um, Glasgow, Missouri, which is in north central Missouri. Uh, the Glasgow, Missouri, is famous for being the first all-steel bridge over the Missouri River, um, which happened. And it was a it was a hub of transportation, right? The 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 trains traveling east and west in the United States almost all went through Glasgow, Missouri, because they had to get over the Missouri River, and they had the most technologically advanced way to do that on a steel suspension bridge. And so Glasgow was a town uh, where John Donaldson was born, and and that town was a a place where you'd get all kinds of traveling uh, shows. Uh, you'd always have circuses. You'd always have um, uh, any kind of entertainment that was cut, would always go through Glasgow, Missouri. So it was a very progressive town in terms of they all at that time without radio or without telephones or without any way to really communicate. You kind of relied on when that train was pulling into town to get all the latest news, figure out what's happening around the world, anything that uh, around the country, um, anything that had to do with uh, communication came via the train. And so 
and this is before radio, obviously, so you wouldn't have any way to really know what was going on until that train came steaming into town and stopped and dropped off newspapers, supplies, and all the they picked up things to uh, in that were used in commerce. And so Gladstone, Missouri, was a very progressive town in terms of they saw almost all the acts came through town, jazz musicians came through town, minstrel shows came through town, circuses, etc. So at that time, um, the Hanukkah Blues was a black baseball team that was sponsored by the soon-to-be mayor of Glasgow, William Hanukkah. Uh, he uh, understood the value of baseball in terms of a marketing tool. He owned a candy store in Glasgow, and he wanted people to shop there. And he understood that if a team was um, going around the uh, going around the state of Missouri to um, uh, promote their town, that the advertising factor could be there. And so he sponsored the team, um, and John Donaldson was one of his first stars. And so John Donaldson, um, in the in the late nineteen early nineteen hundreds, nineteen oh eight, as you say, to nineteen ten, played for them. Um, he was um, getting out of high school. He started college at George R. Smith College, which is in Sedalia, Missouri, which was um, the alma mater of a great composer, Scott Joplin. Uh, John Donaldson went into seminary studies there. He was wanted to be a, uh, a Methodist preacher. His mom wanted him to be a preacher, went to school for that. Um, they had relationships with the college where John Donaldson could go get further educated. So during that time, he was playing baseball around and striking out dozens of people every time he played, and obviously was um, the springboard to his uh, segregated career. Yeah, absolutely, and and it seems like a lot of those those early years, um, you know, in terms of Negro leagues and stuff, primarily traveling by train and stuff like that, was how they carried the news. Um, so that's. Yeah. That's a really it's really unique that not only were they playing baseball but they were traveling they were traveling and carrying the news. People would you know they would go from one town to another and people would ask, "Oh, hey, how's this person or how's that person?" So that's that's a really, yeah, that's really actually, fascinating. That's absolutely what happened. Yeah, and, and word of mouth, it's really important for people to understand today that word of mouth was how John Donaldson's career started. Um, and the the in, the the built-in problem with word of mouth is when people die or go away, they forgot all about this stuff. And so one of the real important parts about the legacy of John Donaldson that is people need to understand today is that uh, once those word of mouth people went away, that John Donaldson's career went away with that. And so it wasn't about um, hearing about it on the radio or obviously Googling it. People would be uh, uh, tell people face to face, over the fence, with how you communicated with your neighbors, and that's how news traveled. And so that was a really important part of understanding where John Donaldson's career comes from, because it was, did you hear about this guy, or did you hear about what John Donaldson did? And that word of mouth, uh, as limited as that was, was how people got the news from town to town. So after playing for a couple of teams in Missouri, we talked about the Hanukkah Blues. He also played for the um, Tigers in in Higby, Missouri. 
He moved to Tennessee, or moved on to playing in Tennessee, rather, and played for W.A. Brown's Tennessee Rats. Now, W.A. Brown is an interesting guy in the history of the Negro Leagues. Can you give me a little bit about him? First of all, um, the the Tennessee Rats, believe it or not, were located in a place called Holden, Missouri. Uh, Tennessee was uh, just the name they had. Uh, Holden, Missouri was not far from John Donaldson's hometown. they knew who the Tennessee Rats were in Glasgow, Missouri. Um, W.A. Brown is an interesting character. He uh, started his career in minstrel shows and was an entertainer. Um, he ended up having a minstrel show slash um, entertainment um, baseball team, uh, the Browns Tennessee Rats. This team would travel around and they play a baseball game in the afternoon. Uh, and then in the evening, they put on a minstrel show in a tent and so these guys would go from the train uh, set up a tent play the baseball game then there would be full complement of minstrel show that night and so people could come and watch both and pay for both and then they'd pick it up and move on to the next town and spend the next day doing exactly the same thing so it was a hard scrabble life in terms of um, you were constantly moving something more of a carnival nature that we think of today Absolutely, absolutely. So after after going to or after playing for W. A. Brown and the Tennessee Rats, he went. He played for the All Nations team for six years, from 1912 to 1918. He played for Lehigh in Lehigh, Iowa, in 1912. Kansas yep. City Colts in 1915. Palm Beach, Florida. Hotel in 1916, yeah. the Los Angeles White Sox Hoist in 1917. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, hard to say, but I know how to the, say it. So there you go. The White Sox in 1917, and then it looks like the Los Indianapolis yep. ABCs. It, it looks like that was the start of his Negro League career. Um, well, yeah, yes and no. Coming out of the uh, what Brown Tennessee Rats did in 1911 was provided him. Uh, Newspaper headlines. He struck out 31 guys in the game in 1911 um, when he was playing for Browns, Tennessee Rats. And what happened was big newspapers were picking up on this, uh, picking up on some of the uh, things he was doing on the field. And he started to become a somewhat sought-after baseball pitcher. He was – and most of the games the Browns, Tennessee Rats played were in in Missouri, um, Iowa, a little bit in Minnesota – um, and so they were Midwestern for sure. And so Brown Tennessee sure. Rats gets him a lot of acclaim in terms of uh, whatever he could do in a very limited basis as an African-American person. He was getting headlines. And so this brought the attention of J.L. Wilkinson. J.L. Wilkinson was the founder of the Kansas City Monarchs in 1920. J.L. Wilkinson's yep. team um, out of Des Moines was the All-Nations team. And J.L. Wilkinson sought out John Donaldson and signed him up to play for the All-Nations team. What the All-Nations team was, was a Paulson baseball team that would travel around the upper Midwest primarily. Um, and they had uh, players of different races. Uh, so you had a Chinese guy, a Japanese guy, a Cuban, um, Native Americans, Indians, um, even Hawaiians, because Hawaii wasn't a state um, at that and time. And they also had – so, didn't they – didn't they also have a female player named Carrie Nation? 
Yes, and, and that's interesting that you bring that up because in 1912, they had a Carrie Nation, her name was. Um, her actual name was May Arbaugh. Carrie Nation was a uh, uh, prohibitionist. Um, she, uh, so they gave her that name. But her name was May Arbaugh, and she was considered okay. the greatest woman baseball player in the world at that time. And so she played for the All-Nations team in 1912. And what's interesting about that is women's suffrage movement um, was a really, really popular thing at that time. First time um, they were marching on Washington, um, they were really trying to do women's suffrage. And that was uh, uh, another way to attract more people to the game was they, that the All-Nations team not only had players of different nationalities, they had uh, a female player as well. Another way to draw a crowd. And that 1912 team is really interesting because they brought a light system with them. Um, and sometime around 1910 at the Iowa State Fair, they started talking about lights, um, street lights mostly for towns to go. They didn't have lights. Uh, and J.L. Wilkinson brought uh, an arc lighting system out on the road with this all-nations team so they could play a day game and then they would play a night game. And imagine that. You could see literally across the um, plains of the United States, you could see the lights from the baseball field at night, which would have been a tremendously new thing to see. And uh, that's really an important part about not only J.L. Wilkinson's future, uh, but the all-nations team and John Donaldson, people came to watch that because that was the entertainment of the time. But they innovated in so many ways, and so many of the places that they went to uh, were first-generation people who just immigrated to the United States. The ticket-buying public, um, the audience really, was people who had just got here too. And so it was popular in, in, uh, to travel all over the uh, upper Midwest to these agricultural-based society uh, to be able to go into these different towns and have a player of our nationality uh, playing on a baseball team was really a, a ticket-buying uh, promotional idea. People could uh, and, and very much associated themselves with um, players of their own country of origin. And so that was really an important part of it. Uh, so they traveled on a Pullman um, railroad car so they could avoid all the societal issues of segregation. Uh, they would have food, place to stay, um, all on the train car. And that was really their oasis away from society at large. Uh, and so the all nations team traveled, uh, starting in 1912. Um, but then they start getting really much better and much more known for their baseball abilities. John Donaldson's right in there with all of them. He's going into these towns and regularly striking out 20 players. I think overall in his career, we had over 220 times he struck out more than 10 players in a game. Uh, wow. He was a strikeout pitcher. He was a left-handed pitcher, which made him even more rare um, at that time. But that's really the genesis of his fame was um, starting with the All-Nations team and being a power left-handed pitcher. He had abilities that people had never seen before up till then. And John Donaldson was really something new and exciting within the game of baseball, uh, Negro League baseball specifically. And so as they get going, you say you mentioned he played for the Indianapolis ABCs in 19, um, 1918. Uh, but the All-Nations team kind of emerges, right? John Donaldson's 
uh, one of the real interesting parts about his career is he's called in 1913, he's called the greatest colored pitcher in the world. Uh, and during that 1913 season, he had a consecutive inning streak without allowing a run of over a hundred innings. Uh, he played almost a whole month without allowing a run. And if you think about that and what I think, as I think about that, uh, it was really a different game back then. Gloves were very small. Bats were uh, much heavier it was much more of a contact game, um, much less of a freewheeling sort of. If a ball hit 10 feet to your left, you'd have to shuffle all the way over there and face that ball and pick it up between your legs because you couldn't dive for it because gloves weren't, were just barely any more than the uh, you know, winter gloves that we wear now. And so the, uh, the game was really different at that time. And so what, but what the All-Nations team did was they progressed. They started off at this sort of, cross uh, attraction like a minstrel show or a circus and then they started getting really really good at baseball and started getting and as baseball became more popular in the 19 teens uh, and and thousands and thousands of hundreds of thousands of baseball teams across the United States at that time baseball was and became the national pastime at that time uh, and so the, the all nations team got better and better and they started getting better and better players, uh, better and better players that were not allowed in organized baseball. And so there was a wealth of talent on those teams, including Hall of Famer Jose Mendez, Cristobal Torrienti. Uh, they had Hall of Fame baseball players on that team, and John Donaldson uh, has yet to get there. But uh, they really were very good at baseball. And so then they came, so then it came about that they were um, – starting to play some more organized Negro league type teams, the Indianapolis ABCs being one of them, Chicago, American giants, uh, Kansas city. There were different teams, St. Louis, uh, player, places that had all black professional baseball teams. Uh, the all nations team was playing and defeating on a regular basis, um, in the 1914, 15, 16 seasons. Meanwhile, the, uh, all nations relocate from Des Moines, Iowa, Kansas City, uh, Kansas City, Missouri, and start um, working for an outfit called the Schmelzer's Arms Company. Um, believe it or not, Devin, the uh, three most popular sports at that time were baseball, boxing, and fly fishing. Um, we're not talking about okay. football, baseball, hockey. Uh, we're talking sure. about a much, uh, much smaller uh, and, and really unknown at this time, uh, modern in a modern sense of what the most popular games were. There was really only baseball was the team sport. Uh, otherwise, it was boxing or, or fly fishing, and those were very solitary things. Um, so baseball was the thing. And so the All-Nations team, John Donaldson in 1913, is called the greatest colored pitcher in the world. Well, by 1914, they dropped the colored part, and they start calling him the greatest pitcher in the world. And that's an amazing thing. Uh, could it be possibly be that this all-nation team had the greatest pitcher in the world at that time? Um, his statistical analysis shows that he probably was. He starts getting some uh, notice from major league teams. Uh, great New York Giants manager John McGraw says that if he could paint him white, he'd have him on the New York Giants and win championships regularly. Uh, different uh, owners and managers of different teams from the St. Paul Saints to the uh, 
Chicago White Sox to different major league clubs at the time wanted John Donaldson on their teams. Who wouldn't? Uh, His left-handed power pitching abilities were such that even to this day are sought after um, by organized baseball and and major league teams. Look at the starters for the World Series um, and look for the pitchers for the Los Angeles Dodgers or left-handers. The teams that make it to and have strong left-handed pitching have a decided advantage and had that a hundred years ago as well. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you mentioned earlier that he had a uh, 18 or that he had a 30 strikeout game. We should know that was in an 18 inning in an 18 inning game. However, um, yep. So his known highlights of the season with the Tennessee rats his reported record was 44 and 3. Obviously, we'll never know if that was real because records back from those days, both Negro League, Town Ball, and Major League records aren't, uh, you know, aren't always accurate. But known highlights of that season include an 18 inning, 31 strikeout game, a 27 strikeout performance, and on at least four different occasions, 19 strikeouts. So yeah, like you said, he was. He was he was something else. He was he was completely different. And right. if I recall correctly, wasn't he the manager of the All Nations team? Uh, he doesn't become the manager of the All Nations team until 1918. Uh, 1918. I'm sorry, 1917. Okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. 1917 when the when the World War One. But I want to step back here a little bit and talk about that presumption that these things aren't available. Um, and that's really what the Donaldson Network and I have been working on for 20 years. If these newspapers are out there. The reports of these guys playing in towns are out there. Um, this sort of idea that, well, we'll never know is, is, is a fallacy. Um, it's a matter of organizing it enough and putting it out there so people can really understand that. Sure, there's going to be gaps in it. Sure, there's going to be uh, there's gaps in major league records. Um, there's gaps in this, but the the presumption that John Donaldson's career couldn't ever be known, and we're going to have to rely on uh, legends and um, sort of partial records, it's just not true. John Donaldson's career is out there, and what my group has been trying to say for years is that you just have to go find it, um, and we have. Um, to the tune of somewhere around 2,300 games we found John Donaldson playing in. Um, that's a lot of information. Uh, so to say that there was a common misconception that, first of all, one of the reasons that none of the Negro League stats or none of the Negro League players could be known was that newspapers didn't report on African Americans. And that's absolutely not true. Uh, they reported on John Donaldson all the time. Uh, and we've proven that to the tune of about 6,800 references for his career. Um, if you're talked about 6,800 times in a newspaper, um, wherever those newspapers are, somebody's going to have read about that, and somebody's going to have um, known about that. Our problem is, is that that sort of presumption of this stuff doesn't exist um, is a very, very difficult hill to climb, and we continue to climb it each day. Uh, by throwing as much information out there as we can. Uh, and that's really one of the things that has sort of uh, been the Achilles heel of uh, Negro League research is that people just kind of assume that, well, we're going to have to 
we're never going to be able to find everything. So um, why do that? That's not true. Um, today you can go and find out all the games John Donaldson played any pitch since um, to date. We have somewhere around 780 pitching appearances. Uh, can you break them down into war and some of the advanced analytics of those things? No, you can't. You're relying on newspaper coverage from a hundred years ago. And technologically that was a difficult thing. Printing a box score in a newspaper um, somewhere in the middle of North Dakota was a, it was a very difficult thing to do. Uh, so we're not going to have the, the advanced analytics that are so many people require today, but that doesn't diminish the, uh, role and legacy of these players and particularly John Donaldson. He suffered from this because people are just pretty sure that it's not there. So why would it even matter? And the fact is, is it does matter. And we have been able to show that for years and years that if you want to go look at it, we have all of uh, John Donaldson's 405 wins listed on our webpage. Uh, it's important to be able to know that that information is out there and um, groups like Steamheads.com are putting up Negro League statistics. Um, these people are working very hard to right this wrong of that stuff's just not out there. And people have been working on that for decades to try and, 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 and different organizations like the Negro League Research and Authors Group, uh, different arms of the Sabre organization. Uh, people are trying to fill these things in. The problem is, is that people, the, general public's mind is pretty much made up that that's not possible and that's a very difficult road to go um, and people are, are uh, very courageously going about trying to get it done so that people can get a real sense of that and so I think that there's this, the preconception of this stuff isn't out there is, is a fallacy and it's something that as Negro League historians we need to do a better job letting people know that it is out there and trying not to uh, draw the color line on these guys again um, because in my opinion that is exactly what's happening is that people just uh, kind of part and parcel uh, eliminate Negro League baseball as a viable thing because it's just not out there and, it, and it's just that's truly wrong it is out there we need to organize it such that it can be seen and looked upon as equal level to organized baseball Absolutely, absolutely. And I was just, I and was that's just really where that, I came you know, into it. I mean, that's, that's the important part of it is to understand that if you, you asked me earlier about what my connection to the game was, my connection to the game is like everyone else. But I also recognized um, more than a dozen years ago that this was woefully underserved in terms of the ability we have today to find these things out. Uh, is really emerging. And all the, I recognize that early on that that sort of objection to the study of Negro leagues baseball, um, because there's no stats available. I realized early on that there's plenty of things available. People just have to find it. And technology has really helped us. Right. Yeah. And I, and I, I didn't mean to, you know, to imply that, that it wasn't there. It didn't matter. I was just saying that that record, yeah. 44 and 3 you know sometimes you they might not have recorded every game or you know something you know so it just yeah um, I, I, we have that... we have dozens of games from that 41 and 3 season uh we have you know we have as many of them as has been printed has been able to find so far 
Uh, but we find them every day. Yeah. I mean, there's new games come around all the time as newspapers are digitized, as people are able to sure. search things. Um, those those games become apparent. Will we ever get the published report of exactly how many wins he had in that year? Probably not. But we're going to be able to fill in a lion's share of them and be able to show you that where he was and when he was there is definitely known. Absolutely. And you mentioned earlier that he played for the Kansas City Monarchs. And an interesting fact is, it did Donaldson coin the term Monarchs? He is, um, uh, he is credited with doing so. The Kansas City Monarchs okay. in 1920 were built around John Donaldson. John Donaldson was the most famous baseball player, a Negro League baseball player in the world. Um, he was known both by uh, the African-American community and the generally white community as one of the greatest players on the planet. Um, and he's billed as such. He goes, uh, his reputation that he earned with the All-Nations team in the 19-teens, was a, uh, he was a bona fide major leaguer. One of the things that, um, that everyone came out to see, imagine what it would take you to uh, get in your um, horse-drawn carriage and go 10, 15 miles to watch a baseball game. Um, the way that you would justify that was, well, there's a major leaguer in town. Uh, we want to see major leagues. And that's never, that has never changed. And so that was what John Donaldson's fame uh, brought him, was people would go tremendous lengths in a very difficult travel period to be able to see him wherever he was. He was a famous baseball player, and he was a great baseball player. And people knew that at that time. And so, yeah, so he goes on to the, when the Negro National League starts to be thought up by Rube Foster in the late 19-teens, they need to have organizations in different cities. In Kansas City and J.L. Wilkinson was a natural fit for that. He already had a traveling team. He already had the organization to be able to do that. He had the relationships with the uh, uh, Association Park the actual stadium in Kansas City. They, and so that was one of the reasons that uh, Kansas City was selected as a Negro National League city was of J.L. Wilkinson's organization. And the Hall of Fame is, uh, has recognized Wilkinson as an innovator of baseball by inducting him in 2006. In 1948, J.L. Wilkinson did an interview with the Kansas City Call and he said that Donaldson was, quote, one of the greatest pitchers that ever lived, white or black. And that kind of harkens back to, um, you know, your your goal and your organization's goal of saying, you know, he wasn't, a, he wasn't the best black pitcher ever. He was the best pitcher ever, trying to take that color out of it. Um, J.L. Wilkinson, you know, realized that in that and mentioned that in that interview. Joe Wilkinson yeah. is obviously the the person who formed the Kansas City Monarchs in 1920. Um, he had 29-year-old John Donaldson working as a pitcher and a center fielder. And it was reported in Kansas City newspapers that Donaldson would even manage from time to time, but it appears there was a change at the last minute and Jose Mendez was chosen. But that's still not a bad Paul choice Jose as a manager to- yeah, Hall of Famer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, here's the thing about that, Devlin, is the uh, uh, John Donaldson was going to be the manager of the Kansas City Monarchs in 1919. There's proof of this, and that's published reports 
that the Kansas City Monarchs were going to be owned by J.L. Wilkinson, they were going to be managed by John Donaldson, and they were going to compete in the Negro National League. Um, sometime around the start of the season, <clears throat> Wilkinson takes the managerial job away from John Donaldson and gives it to Jose Mendez. And there's always been a real debate as to why that was. Um, John Donaldson was the drawing card um, even more than Jose Mendez, much more than Jose Mendez. And we figured out the reason was no one really knew if the Negro National League was going to exist or how long it was going to exist. There was uh, attempts at um, forming organized Negro Leagues dozens of years um, before that. Um, and every time they somehow disbanded, this, the league never stuck. Um, the Negro National League, known as the uh, first Negro League um, is really the only one that could sustain any amount of time. And they last from 1931 when the whole thing, because of the Great Depression, really ruined everything. But in even 1917, 1918, when the um, United States was entering World War I, there was a real uh, attempt to make a Negro League uh, starting in 1917. But then all the players are getting drafted, and the Spanish flu happens. Um, there's several key society things that are happening that uh, prohibit the Negro National League from starting. And so when that – they weren't really certain that the Negro National League, as it stood in 1920, how long that was going to last. And one of the great things that J.L. Wilkinson did was he kind of hedged his bets um, in terms of he knew he had John Donaldson on his team, and John Donaldson could make money all over the Midwest and did um, for the previous 10 years. Um, he gave the managerial job to Jose Mendez so he could play John Donaldson on the weekends and other places because he didn't know how much money they were going to make. He didn't know if the Negro National League was going to survive. And even the um, first season of the Negro National League and subsequent years, they didn't play a balanced schedule, for instance. Uh, the Chicago American Giants, who won the Negro National League in 1920, uh, did it by playing almost all home games. Uh, and they controlled the gate. Uh, that was how they made money. They weren't going to travel any more than they had to to the other Negro National League cities, and their records show that. Their winning percentage was higher than the Kansas City Monarchs, which gave them the Negro National League championship. Um, that wasn't because they all played 162 games against the same competition on a regularly metered thing that we look at today. This sort of idea that this Negro League was uh, – level competition and they played equal amount of games and the fallacy it did not happen. Uh, the Negro national league was a percentage. Uh, the standings were based on percentage of wins. Uh, and, the, and the Kansas city monarchs played a lot more games than the Chicago American giants did that season. And just happened to have a poorer uh, winning percentage than the Chicago American giants did. So the pennant theoretical pennant was given to, Chicago American Giants that year, but the Kansas City Monarchs played a lot more games and a lot more games against the Negro National League teams. They were willing to travel. They took the all-nation sort of uh, model and travel all over. And, and Negro National League games were primarily played between Thursday and Sunday. They didn't play every day of the week, leaving them four or five days a week when there wasn't a Negro National League game going that they could barnstorm throughout the United States. And that's what John Donaldson was doing. Uh, he was along with that team, but he was pitching on side games uh, as they would travel between Negro National League cities because he was a known moneymaker. 
And so his statistics in the Negro National League, I believe it's the CMEDS guys have him at 21 and 27 as a pitcher, um, not even a 500 record. Um, the reason he's not the manager of the Kansas City Monarchs is if he's going to Detroit uh, to play the Detroit Stars, uh, and he's not with the team because he's getting hired out to play somewhere else and make money for the team, the organization. Uh, he couldn't be the manager of the Kansas City Monarchs, which crushed his legacy. Um, if John Donaldson's the manager of the Kansas City Monarchs from 1920 to 1925, uh, his legacy is completely different than what we're talking about today. And so he has these sort of uh, he has these different occurrences that happen in his career, which are more more have to do with the financial aspect of the game than it does about the statistics and what happens on the field. Um, you have to understand this is a, uh, a money-making, primarily money-making venture. Uh, it isn't about amassing stats that are so impressive that they need to impress people in, in 2018. Um, this is about survival. This is about trying to make money on their uh, baseball venture. So John Donaldson's uh, managerial ship of the Kansas City, famed Kansas City Monarchs franchise um, was subdued because they needed him to make money in other places. And that show is proven by the 1922 season. John Donaldson doesn't even play with the Kansas City Monarchs anymore because he's out in the Midwest making money. And so you could go to the Negro League Baseball Museum in Kansas City, which is a beautiful place to visit. I would recommend everyone do that. Um, and you'll see the great Negro League Kansas City Monarchs teams and Negro League teams standing shoulder to shoulder. And these great uh, images of, of African-American power, these guys are great baseball players. John Donaldson's not in any of those pictures. The reason John Donaldson's not in any of those pictures isn't because he's not a good baseball player anymore. It's because he's making money for those people. And he's out making their, uh, their salary money because the Negro National League was a mess in different areas financially to be able to pay the players that they had. And so John Donaldson's Negro National League career is greatly muted because he's out playing games and making money. And that was a, and, and buoyed the Kansas city Monarchs franchise for years and was, uh, and people don't recognize that they will Google him and say, well, he's 21 and 27. He couldn't have been great. Well, he, the reason he the reason he had such a muted Negro National League career was because he's playing all over the place at other times at the exact same time the Kansas City Monarchs are playing. He can't be on both teams at once, um, but he's going out and making known money in places in the upper Midwest that uh, lined the coffers of J.L. Wilkinson and actually allowed him to pay the other players. And that needs to be understood. It wasn't because John Donaldson was hurt or or uh, not good enough. He was uh, ability, unique ability to make money uh, was something that made him the most valuable person on the Kansas City Monarchs team, um, and he wasn't even playing. And that's an important part to understand is at that time, the fractured Negro National League as it was, uh, was yes, a Negro League, and it was legitimate for sure. But the point is, is that J.L. Wilkinson took John Donaldson back to where he knew he could make money so that they would always have money in the bank to pay the Negro National League players from the Kansas City Monarchs. And that's a fact. And people need to understand that. So, yes, John, if you Google search John Donaldson or look on his Wikipedia page and you say, look, 
He's only 21 and 27 in the Negro National League. He must not have been that good, or he must have been old, or he must have been whatever. Uh, the fact's just that's just not true. The fact is, is he's out making more money for his franchise, and so more people can play black baseball in the United States, and that's part of his legacy that needs to be talked about. Absolutely, and that's and that's pretty remarkable too to take a take a player you know, of that quality and, and to do that. Let's switch gears here well, a little yeah, bit. I, I, don't wanna, I, I, I don't wanna yeah, I, I, I wanna be able to to I wanna be able to let you understand a little bit about what we know as Satchel Page today. Okay, Satchel Page is the icon of of Negro League baseball, right? Satchel Page is a guy who put who grows up in Mobile, Alabama and his story is pretty well known. In fact, a couple of movies have been made about him, have been written about him. Um, what Satchel Paige's relationship to John Donaldson is, is a lot of Satchel Paige-isms. Um, calling in the outfielders, uh, uh, being able to do a lot of the sort of baseball tricks that he did and was known for, were being done by John Donaldson 20 years before Satchel Paige was even around. And it's a proven fact. The, uh, the, the, the newspapers support this he's calling in outfielders all the time in 1923 he's in uh, um, in in South Dakota and he's challenging people in the newspaper he says um, what we're going to do against the champions of South Dakota uh, we're going to we're going to bet 50 bucks and every inning I'm taking a player off the field and every inning by the ninth inning it's going to be me and the catcher and we're still going to win and he does it um this is John Donaldson. This isn't Satchel Paige. Um, people need to understand that a lot of the um, showmanship that Satchel Paige employs in the 1930s and 1940s is really generated from the history of John Donaldson doing the same thing. Um, he could, he was, it was said that he had such control that from a city block away, he could throw a ball into a number two tin can. And a number two tin can is two and two-thirds inches round, and he could throw a ball into that from a block away. John Donaldson could do whatever he wanted on a baseball field, and everybody knew that. And other players with the Negro League, in the Negro League persuasion um, played off of what John Donaldson's original ideas were. And so one of the things that we really push um, is to show that other Negro League players took some of John Donaldson's hijinks and shtick, really, and employed it in a much more uh, – media savvy time and it could be written about and talked about on, on tv and radio and those people are credited with originating that idea and that's just not true john donaldson did that and we have proof to show that uh, and so john donaldson's legacy as a negro league baseball player needs to be brought back because he's the originator of many of these things that have been applied to other players since and so, including Satchel Page, in 1938, Satchel Page um, is, is, is uh, banned from the Negro National League because he contract jumps. He goes to um, um, uh, Central America and plays, comes back and, is, and is, is, is hired by the Kansas City Monarchs. J.L. Wilkinson puts Satchel Page in the front seat of the car and puts John Donaldson behind the wheel and, drives jo- and John Donaldson drives Satchel Page across the upper Midwest, written about in the newspapers, and takes him around because he can't play in the Negro National League, and he takes him back to all the places in North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, Minnesota, places where John Donaldson was famous. 
uh, places where Satchel Page could learn some of these things that Satchel Page ultimately is known for, uh, it, it can be rooted right back to the front seat of that car. And we can prove this. And this is a part of the game and part of the legacy of John Donaldson that needs to be resurrected. He's not some sort of 21 and 27 uh, record pitcher. He's an influencer in the whole game itself. And that's what we try and work on every single day. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, and that's, and that's remarkable. I mean, there's so much more than, than people will probably ever know, but like you said, it is out there and you guys are unearthing stuff every day. So if you, that's right. And I I think it's really important to understand that we are also working on a film project. Our film project is called 39 seconds. Uh, in 1925, while John Donaldson was playing in central Minnesota, a town called Fergus Falls, um, a guy takes out a movie camera and he records 39 seconds of John Donaldson pitching and playing baseball in Fergus Falls. Um, and so our film project is based around those 39 seconds. We don't have to sell John Donaldson's greatness based on faded newspaper articles. We don't have to do it on the opinion of somebody in 2018 or or earlier we have film footage of him throwing the ball we can show you what he looks like we can show you what he was doing in 1911 um, based on his throwing motion and what how he threw the baseball that was absolutely unique to that time Um, they had never seen anything like this before his throwing style is very modern you would think he was pitching for the um, los angeles dodgers tonight in the world series Uh, and this is in 19 teens uh, and so it's really important to understand that John Donaldson's career and his legacy restoration that we work on all the time, something that you have to take my word for it. You can look for yourself and you can see exactly who he was, exactly how he threw the baseball, exactly what he did, exactly who he influenced. And you can decide for yourself. It's, it's, a, it's a vital part of what we're doing. And it's a huge part of the film that we're putting together. It's a documentary feature film that is going to tell John Donaldson's story. It's going to tell John Donaldson's story from a point of view that he was a great baseball player and he was something people would need to see. This isn't going to be a, a dime store novel that people are going to be able to pick up and throw away. This is going to be something that's going to live on in a digital age. And that's really important for what we're doing in terms of legacy restoration. We decidedly didn't put together a book. We have chapters and books and we've written different pieces for lots of different publications but the fact is that we wanted to show it in a different way and we can show this on a film because we have film footage of it Uh, and to restore John Donaldson's legacy is going to uh, have you be able to see it yourself and that's really the key to our 39 seconds film and I'm putting together um, working with a bunch of dedicated filmmakers here in Minneapolis who are working day and night to try and get a script. I was earlier this morning revising script. Uh, This making of a film is a huge thing, and we're going to be able to show the world who John Donaldson was, and we're going to be able to show his influence uh, through film, not necessarily a blog post or a uh, published book. And that's a a decided decision that we've made uh, because because the book just wouldn't do it. We have the ability to show him. We have the ability to show people 
how he threw the baseball, we have to do it in a format that is equal to that. And so we chose to make a documentary feature film about it, and we're working on that right now. That's fantastic, yeah. And that feature film footage that you talked about, that was that was made on August 16, 1925. You mentioned it was in Fergus Falls. It was uncovered in 2010, and that day uh, John Donaldson faced off against Joe Yeager, who later, um, they, or who, or, I'm sorry, who previously had made two relief appearances for the Chicago Cubs. So he was basically facing yeah. off against the former major leaguer. Yeah, and, and teams would do that against John Donaldson regularly. Um, they would load up with as many players as they could find to try and beat him, and he regularly defeats everyone he plays against. Um, they, he wasn't, yes, he was playing at town teams, but they were hired out guns. I mean, they found guys from all over the place who could come and play against him. The reason that they were able to do that was because it was guaranteed when John Donaldson was there that a huge crowd would show up. So they could afford to spend $50 on a shortstop. They could afford to spend $75 on a starting pitcher, former major leaguer. They could afford to do lots of things because thousands of people would show up. And in order to do that, um, they were hedging their bet to be able to um, draw a huge crowd, and they were all trying to beat John Donaldson, every single one of them, and they almost never did. To the tune of 405 yeah. wins, to the to the tune of 5,044 strikeouts that we have uh, right now, we got five more last week. Uh, we're continually adding to the legacy of John Donaldson. Found another game this morning. Um, it's important to understand that John Donaldson's legacy is being uncovered and restored one game at a time across the United States. He played in 25 different states. He played in 550 different cities across the country. He's all over the place, and he's playing against anybody who's, who wants to play against him that is allowed by society to do. And that's an important part to understand is John Dallas's career behind the color barrier was as successful as you could possibly have had, um, and nobody knows that today. Absolutely. We're gonna to have to wrap it up here, Pete. We got under under two minutes left. Man, has this hour flown by? Just lots of great has information, it? and yeah, and so much just great, great storytelling on your part. Just really bringing John Donaldson alive, and just kind of you know letting people know the dedication and effort, and but also who he was as a person and a player. On his, uh, on let me his give you Wikipedia something to finish. Page. Yeah, let go me ahead. give you something to finish with. John Donaldson was famous enough to be able to comment on race relations in the United States. Um, often Jack Johnson is looked at as somebody or Joe Lewis um, or Jackie Robinson, uh, players who were famous enough to be able to tell you what their opinion was about segregation. John Donaldson says, uh, I'm not ashamed of my color. There's no woman I love more than my mother. I'm light enough so a baseball man told me before I became known that I could be passed off as a Cuban and play in the major leagues. One prominent baseball guy offered him $10,000 in 1917 if he could go to Cuba, change his name, and come back into the country as a Cuban. John Donaldson stood firm and said no. This would have, re- this would have meant renouncing his family, and one of the agreements was that he had, was ha- to have nothing to do with colored people again. He could not go visit his mother. He, re- he flatly refuses this offer. He says... I'm clean morally and physically. I go to my church. I contribute my share. 
I keep my body and mind clean. And yet when I go out on the baseball field, it's not unusual to hear some fan cry out, hit the dirty N-word. And that hurts, he said, for I have no recourse. I am getting paid, I suppose, to take that. But why should fans become personal? If I act the part of a gentleman, am I not entitled to a little respect? This is a quote from John Donaldson. He says this when this would have been incredibly career-limiting for any other African-American player to say anything like that. Uh, Famous enough and comfortable enough to be able to be quoted like that, and he has the um, reputation and he has the uh, ability to say that in a time when no one could say that except him. And that's something we need to learn about today, and it's something that uh, I'm so glad we got to touch, scratch the surface on this morning. But I think it's important that people understand that John Donaldson had the integrity to be able to shun the major leagues and continue his struggle as an African-American person to gain and gather as much fame as he could. And that is part and parcel with what Donaldson Network and what we're trying to do to restore his legacy. He deserves it. He needs it. And I believe people need to hear the story about how there was somebody who bucked the trend and somebody who was socially conscious and who was excelling at a high rate, but they just never gave him a chance. They, he, there was no way he was going to pitch in the major leagues. Um, that's the behind the color barrier um, that so, so aptly was destroyed in 1947. But there were lots of players who were paving the way for Jackie Robinson and John Donaldson being key among them. Absolutely. Pete, I cannot thank you enough. What a fascinating hour this has been. Just Again, I feel like you really just brought him to life. Your film is called 39 Seconds. When do you hope to have that completed? Uh, that's looking at – we're looking at the spring of 2019, next spring. Uh, it's okay. really going to be good time for that, and we need to be able to tell his story. So, But movie making is hard. Uh, movie making takes a lot longer than I originally thought it would. Uh, and so sure. I think that we're we're working towards that. Our goal is spring of 2019, and more information can be found at our – film website 39secondsfilm.com what a great way to end pete thank you so much i cannot thank you enough for coming on educating us about john donaldson who might be the greatest player that until this interview a lot of my listeners didn't know about thank you so much pete have a great day thanks Evan. i appreciate your i appreciate your time and uh, let's keep talking about john donaldson thanks so much absolutely all right, everybody. Wow, what what a fantastic hour that was. I mean, just Pete just brings to life John Donaldson. You can hear the knowledge that Pete has about about Donaldson just kind of coming out of coming out of him. You can tell he's passionate, enthusiastic about it. And Pete has actually unearthed over three hundred different towns that Donaldson played in, including over a hundred in Minnesota. And he also ended up, uh, I believe he ended up playing in my town as well. I'll have to get the details from Pete on that as well. But I believe he played in my town too. Ladies and gentlemen, 39secondsfilm.com. Think about becoming a donor to it. It is a great, great project about an amazing man and an amazing ball player. A lot of people are spending a lot of days and nights and tireless hours working at it to make it the best film that they possibly can. I'll give you more information once once it becomes available regarding the film. The film website, 39seconds, 
39secondsfilm.com. Thank you guys for joining me on this hour. Stay tuned for the next episode, episode 43 of the show about the show. Thank you, everybody. I appreciate it, and we'll see you down the road in podcast land.